Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello! Welcome back to another episode of the Delicious Legacy Podcast. My name is Thomas Dinas, and on each episode, I'm going to take you to a different ancient gastronomic adventure. Strap in while we're traveling back in time and enjoy our delicious adventures. Another archaeogastronomical adventure begins this week, and today we're talking about the history of pickles. And we're not going to just say pickled vegetables, of course, but all sorts of pickles. The ancients literally pickled everything. And um, yes, today's episode will be a lot of fun. So strap in and enjoy. Okay, welcome back. It's time to listen to the second and final part of the history of pickles. Here we shall see a medieval chutney from Richard II's form of curry cookbook. Evidence of brine cheese, aka feta, the emergence of Dutch pickled herrings and how they conquered the world, a brief history of sauerkraut, Indian pickles, why the balsamic vinegar is such a special vinegar, and of course, the triptych of soybeans, miso and soy sauce. Enjoy the second part of the universal history of pickles. The medieval uh, cookbook of Richard II, The Form of Curry, provides the earliest English recipe for chutney. It appears under the unpromising title of compost. To prepare the chutney, the king's master cooks took white turnips, parsnips, radishes and pears, cut them into chunks and boiled them. Once cold, they added salt, vinegar, spices and saffron and let the mixture sit overnight. The following day, they stirred in Greek wine and honey, Lombardy mustard, raisins, Currants, walnuts, sweet spices, and seeds of anise and fennel. This so-called uh, compost was stored in an earthenware pot and used as, as required. This elaborate concoction can be traced back to ancient Rome and the simple recipe given by Apicius for turnips preserved in honey and vinegar, which uh, we mentioned earlier. In Asia, myriad pickles are produced without the resource to brine or vinegar. In China and Japan, Salty fermented foods provide the pickling medium. The Chinese favor soybean paste and wine lees. The Japanese, in addition, use soy sauce, uh, koji, 
and the cooked rice and rice mold. All this starts, uh, as we said earlier, aids the fermentation. The lactic acid bacteria converted to lactic acid, giving the pickled food a high acidity, which ensures it keeps well for a long time. Another ancient Chinese manuscript, the Zhu Li, so the rites of the Zhu, which details the posts and duties of government officials in the Zhu dynasty. We're talking about 1046 to 256 BCE. So this document illustrates the range of pickled foods prepared at this time, referred to as uh, Qi or Zhu. According to the Zhu Li, the superintendent of fermented victuals was responsible for pickling, which uh, now utilized vinegar as well as salt. To take care of the domestic needs of the royal household, the superintendent prepared 60 jars for storing fermented condiments and preserves. He fills them with uh, five types of finely sliced pickled meat or vegetables, seven kinds of boneless paste, seven varieties of coarsely cut pickled vegetables, and three kinds of meat paste still mixed with bone. The pastes which accompanied the pickles uh, were prepared from a variety of finely sliced meats, including snails, frogs, rabbit and deer. These were mixed with salt, mold ferment and good wine, and left for 100 days. Pickled turnip was paired with venison paste, watermallow with a paste of raw deer, and cut tail root with a paste made from elafur, Chinese deer. Pickles were an integral part of meals in the royal palace and always available for use in the rituals or entertainments. At the same time, simple pickles were an essential food for the masses. Records from the building of the Great Wall of China under the first emperor Queen Shi Huang in the 3rd century BCE indicate that conscripted peasants, counted in their tens of thousands, were given rations of fermented vegetables in return for their labors. The most famous queen of ancient Egypt, Cleopatra, is supposed to have attributed her beauty into a diet of pickles. Yet, the ancient Egyptians left little evidence of the variety of foods they preserved in brine or vinegar. According to the Greek historian Herodotus, the Babylonians and Egyptians pickled birds and fish using salty seawater, a reference to evaporating seawater in pans to produce a strong brine. Of course, we have uh, paintings and uh, tombs uh, from the necropolis of Thebes, where we have uh, geese or ducks de- uh, being plucked and eviscerated before being placed in um, earthenware vessels. And similar scenes appear in other tomb paintings, and an amphora containing birds preserved with salt was found on the tomb of Ka. It seems that uh, pickled birds were consumed with, without further preparation. The Greek um, historian... Herodotus, in his book Histories, writes quails also, and ducks, and small birds, they eat uncooked, merely salting them first. The ancient Romans uh, left us in no doubt uh, <laughs> as to their enthusiasm for pickles. There was little that didn't find its way to brine or vinegar. Columella, writing in the first century CE, advises his fellow citizens. Now is the time, if pickles chip you sick, to plant the caper and harsh and la campane, and threatening fennel, creeping roots of mint, and fragrant flowers of dill and rue, which the Palladian berries taste improves, 
and mustard, which will make him weep, whoever provokes it. Now the roots are set of Alexander's dark, the weepy onion. And to add to Columella's planting list, turnips, swedes, cardoons, cabbage, chicory, lettuce, sunfire and asparagus. They were all pickled. Butcher's broom, cut mint, horseradish, rue, parsley, thyme, savory and marjoram. Vine leaves and shoots, plums, sorbs, cornel berries and nuts. And you have a sense of the variety of produce to be found in a pickle store. In his book, in Columella's treatise on agriculture, uh, volume 3, book 12, he observes that the use of vinegar and hard brine is very necessary, they say, for the making of preserves. To prepare hard brine, Columella takes a wide-mouthed amphora, places it out in the sun and fills it with rain or spring water, into which he suspends a basket of salt. The basket is shaken and the salt topped up from time to time until it ceases to dissolve, an indication that the solution is saturated. The brine was deemed to be of sufficient strength when a piece of fresh cheese, small dried fish or a hen's egg floated, a test which uh, we can still employ today, or it's been still employed today uh, to test the brine. Vinegar was prepared from flat wine and the concoction of other ingredients, including yeast, dried figs, salt, honey, fresh mint, toasted barley and walnuts, to name but a few. All this encourages fermentation and add flavor. Fresh, unfermented grape juice, known as must, was another popular pickling medium. Must combined with vinegar or brine was used for plums, the cherry berries, or for pickling roots and for fermenting olives. Cardoons were given special treatment, preserved in vinegar and honey. So as Pliny the Elder notes, there may be no day without thistles for dinner. Turnips were another popular pickle. Columella pickles turnips in vinegar and mustard. The famous or infamous Gourmana Piscius, which we have seen earlier on on the podcast, indulges his countryman's pension for combining sweet and sour. In one recipe, he pickles turnips with middleberries, vinegar and honey. In another, he mixes mustard with honey, vinegar and salt. And um, one, obviously, one very important pickle, as we know and seen a few times, that the Greeks and the Romans loved, was garum, the fermented fish sauce. Apicius has an appetizing pickled fish dish. Uh, which uh, it's titled uh, To Preserve Fried Fish and the instructions are to the point. The moment the fish is fried, take them out of the pan and pour hot vinegar over them. Fish pickled in vinegar is still prepared in Italy today. It's prepared in Greece this way and we've seen throughout the, me- the medieval times we've seen similar dishes throughout Spain and France. The Italian pilgrim Pietro Casola visited Crete at the end of the 15th century and he said, They make a great many cheeses. It is a pity they are all so salty. I saw great warehouses full of them, some in which the brine, or salmoria, as we would say, was two feet deep, and the large cheeses were floating in. Those in charge told me that these cheeses could not be preserved in any other way, being so rich. So this seems to be a mention of feta cheese then. At the height of the Ottoman Empire, which dominated the southern Europe 
and then Anatolia for, for centuries. Uh, the Turkish sultans they drew in culinary practices from across the empire, and uh, particularly from the Arab and Persian cuisine. And of course, they had lots and lots of pickles. A selection of pickles appeared at every meal, and the kitchen accounts revealed that they were consumed in great quantities. In 1620, more than 11,000 cabbages were purchased for pickling. Aside from cabbages, the cooks pickled turnips, artichokes, aubergines, cucumbers and gourds and numerous fruits, including lemons, bitter oranges, pomegranates and all these using the finest yellow vinegar of the Bursa province. So the Ottomans and the cuisine of the Ottomans was um, inspired by the writings of al-Baghdati, the 13th century scribe we've seen uh, earlier on. His cookbook was the favorite Arabic cookbook of the uh, the Ottomans, and the original manuscript is still held in uh, Istanbul, in the Topkapi Palace. And as we've seen earlier, the humoral and, di- and the dietary qualities of foods, uh, which were based on the teachings of Hippocrates and Galen, influenced also the Ottomans, and they paid great attention to this. So they liked pickles, and particularly pickled capers, onions and garlic, radish, pickled radish with vinegar, and beetroot pickle with mustard, these were all regarded as gentle nutrients, which aided digestion. Their consumption was recommended to counter the effects of coarse indigestible foods, of which it seems there were many. Of course, a famous or infamous pickle <laughs> is uh, herrings. Um, a 14th century Dutchman, William Buckles, is credited with the invention of pickled herrings, Preserving this oily fish in brine transformed the herring's culinary and commercial potential. The abundant herring became known as the silver of the sea, and its trade helped shape the balance of economic powers in Europe. The Dutch method was revolutionary. Pickling the perishable herrings, gutted and flat in salt water, rather than piled in irregular salted heaps, excluded air, which meant they kept well. This advance was enhanced by processing the herrings while they were still at their freshest. At the instant, the nets were landed, that is, out at sea, rather than back in the harbour. So the Dutch pickled herrings acquired a reputation for quality no other nation could match, as the Dutch invested heavily in this new venture. By 1410, they had built wide-bodied, multi-decked ships, herring buses, for the express purpose of catching and salting herrings far from the Dutch ports. These distinctive three-masted ships were the forerunners of the modern factory ships. During the herring season, between July and December, they were able to stay at sea for weeks at a time, maximizing their catch and cutting costs. So fleets of Dutch buses operated off England and Scotland in sight of the shore, outnumbering and outfacing the small local herring boats and the pickling process was highly regulated by the Dutch government to guarantee quality. The fish were gutted immediately after they were taken from the nets, grated and packed, and packed tightly head to tail in salted layers in wooden barrels. Each barrel was topped up with seawater, sealed and dated. Correctly labelled, the brined herrings stayed in good condition for up to a year. In this pickled form, Dutch herrings were traded in every major European market. By the mid-17th century, the Dutch posted a fleet of 2,000 buses and controlled Europe's herring trade. They forced the Flemish out of business, conquered the German and Baltic markets, 
and supplied more than half of the pickled herrings sent to London. Dutch herrings commanded more than twice the price of those pickled in Yarmouth, Scarborough or Bridlington. Pickled herrings were the staple food of rich and poor alike. They were served straight from the brine or in well-to-do homes combined with other ingredients. The English chopped them small and along with oil added finely chopped onion, lemon and apples. At some point in time, it became commonplace to put the brined herrings in vinegar solution with various flavorings, including peppercorns, maize, bay leaves, onion, mustard seeds, dill, and in the case of sweet pickled herrings, sugar. Sweden's popular dill seal, pieces of herring fillet bottled in vinegar with sugar and dill, continues this tradition. Alas, from the 18th century onwards, the herring industry faltered, ending 400 years of uh, the Dutch domination. Yet the pickled herring remained an essential food of the poor, peasant and labouring classes across Eastern Europe until well into the 20th century. If you love pickles and crave the fermented little treasures, Malbin Greek has a plethora of preserved foods from all over the Hellenic countryside. Let's start with the Siglino pork from Mane, which is like no other pork you ever had. Preserved in extra virgin olive oil and smoked over sage wood, it's just amazing. You can eat it in omelettes or with fava puree and topped with caramelized onions. I've got a recipe on my Patreon for that. Or you can eat it simply on toast. Even you can have it on its own, like a meze with ouzo or chipro. Then, tricalinos anchovies in olive oil. They are amazing too. Or, of course, the legendary barrel-aged feta from Costarellos, an amazing cheese matured for six months in oak barrels in brine. Or the naturally fermented plum olives, an ancient variety from Mycenae. Or the classic pickled Sandorini caper leaves, another little gastronomic secret of the Greek island life. Simply use them in salads or with tomato on Dacos barley rasks. So much variety of wonderful produce to choose from. Or try Malbin Greek's homemade tarama, salted and cured codro with a unique beautiful taste like no other. Malbe and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Shop now online and get a 15% discount with the code DELICIOUS and get the exquisite goods delivered to your door. Of course, we cannot talk about um, pickles and uh, the history of pickles and not mention uh, sauerkraut, uh, which is very, 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 very popular nowadays, of course, and it's been for some centuries. But in the history of pickles, in the long history of pickles, sauerkraut is, uh, or at least as we make it today, is a relatively newcomer no more than 400 years old. The distinguishing feature of sauerkraut is that it's dry salted. Other cabbage pickles that we've seen, or we know of, and those perfected by the Chinese a few thousand years ago, they are prepared wet by adding brine to the cabbage. For sauerkraut, dry salt is sprinkled into the shredded cabbage, weighted uh, down. Within a short amount of time, the cabbage gives up sufficient moisture to create its own brine and fermentation begins. This innovation, which Europe can claim as its own, was arrived at by degrees. The Romans pickled the cabbage in brine and vinegar. In the Middle Ages, cabbage was cut into pieces, packed into crocks and covered with verjuice, sour wine or vinegar, to which great quantities of salt were added. 
Contemporary accounts describe how the French prepared cabbages this way. The highly acidic and salty liquids preserved the vegetables, but had its limitations. Significant quantities of vinegar or veg juice were required for pickling, while the sourness and saltiness of the pickled cabbage meant it required soaking in plain water before use. So obviously the German word sauerkraut literally means sour cabbage and may be in the indicative of the predominant tastes of these early cabbage pickles. But clever, resourceful people at some point thought that uh, maybe we should drop the sour liquids and then just place it in brine. And this development reduced the sourness of the pickle liquor and facilitated uh, the lacto-fermentation, which improved the cabbage's flavour. One of the earliest accounts of preserving cabbage in brine provided in 1607 by Le Tresor de Santi, which describes how Germans prepared the cabbage for winter use. These cabbages were shredded and placed in layers with salt, juniper berries, spices, barberries and pepper. Each layer was pressed down firmly and brine added. By the time Hannah Glass Uh, came to include a recipe for sauerkraut in uh, her 1758 edition of The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy, the method of dry salting was well established. She notes, It is a dish much made use of amongst the Germans and in the North Countries where the frost kills all the cabbages. The hard white cabbages were pickled whole with a large handful of salt to every four or five heads and powdered caraway seeds to give a fine flavour. Once salted, the cabbages were weighted down, covered closely and left to stand for a month before using. Captain Cook, uh, the English uh, explorer, widely credited with winning the battle against scurvy on his log voyages, attributed his success in part to persuading his reluctant crew to eat sauerkraut. When the first refused, Cook, uh, knowing his men's dislike for anything out of the common way, uh, although it be very much for their good. He ordered the cabbage to be served only to the, ofi- to the officers, for when the superiors set a value on it, it becomes the finest stuff in the world. We now know that sauerkraut's effectiveness in preventing scurvy is down to the high levels of vitamin C in fresh cabbage, much of which is preserved through pickling. India has its own uh, collection of, of uh, pickles. Early accounts of kingly feasts highlight the integral role pickles have played in Indian cuisine for centuries. In a manuscript from the 11th century CE, we read uh, of pickles prepared with the spicy fruits of Karira and the craneberry. King Someswara III, ruler of the western Chaluka kingdom in the 12th century, includes a preparation of acidic relishes of yam, curds and fruit juices in his encyclopedic Manasolasa, a refresher of the mind while the fictional king Nilapati in the poet Nemichandra's erotic novel Lilavati enjoys pickles of fruits, vegetables and roots, flavoured with camphor and presented on a lotus leaf. Ancient accounts um, describe relishes of mango, cucumber and tamarind preserved in vinegar or pickled in sour rice gruel. This custom has been maintained through the centuries. The 17th century writer Anaji described the meal with a pickle of tender mangoes, the stalks of which had not even lost their fresh green color, and vegetables delicately acid and salt. 
for those for those of you who are Patreon backers, I'll put some um, recipes for ancient pickles on Patreon for you to read. Of course, when we talk about vinegar, we cannot forget the most famous aged vinegar, which is balsamic vinegar. It accounts for 35% of all vinegar sold around the world. But most of the vinegar that is consumed, uh, it's not true balsamic, unfortunately, guys. But instead, the unaged aceto balsamico di Modena, which is a mixture of red wine vinegar, cooked grape must, and caramel. The traditional method of crafting balsamic vinegar takes place in both Modena and Reggio Emilia, the neighboring cities in northern Italy. It requires five to nine wooden barrels made from different woods. Mulberry, oak, juniper, cherry, ash and acacia, to name a few. It's built to different capacities. The barrels descend in size from 66 liters to 15 liters. At the outset, grape must that has been, uh, has been cooked down to caramelize and concentrate the sugars is fermented into sweet wine by a plethora of different yeasts. From there, it's uh, acidified into vinegar and then the largest barrels are filled with this vinegar, which is aged for minimum of one year before being transferred to the next smallest barrel. Since wood is porous, water and some of the acetic acid are able to evaporate through the barrel, while larger aromatic compounds are not, leading to a milder, more concentrated flavor. The portion that disappears over time is known as the angel's share, a term which is also used in whiskey making. But the heavenly stuff is actually what is left behind. Only enough vinegar to fill the next smallest barrel is transferred. What was removed from the large barrel is replaced with freshly acidified grape must. The vinegar continues to proceed down the line to successively smaller barrels and each barrel is topped up with liquid from the next largest barrel. For the traditional balsamic, to be labelled DOP, Denomination of Origin of Production, the protected designation by the European Union, the vinegar must be aged for at least 12 years. At the end of the 12 years, a small portion of the finished balsamic vinegar is drawn from the smallest barrel and finds its way to discriminating customers. Balsamic vinegar production, as we see, is laborious, to say the least. As with uh, almost every ancient civilization, China's early existence hinged on the domestication of nutrient-rich crops. So, Middle East we had chickpeas, in uh, Mesoamerica we had maize, in East Asia there was the soybeans. There is no more efficient way to produce protein than to grow soy. It yields nearly 20 times more protein per hectare than grazing cattle, or using the land for growing fodder. Of the 20 amino acids that our bodies require to function, there are 9 that we can't produce on our own. Soybeans are one of the few plant foods on earth that contain all 9 of those essential amino acids. The earliest evidence points to the cultivation of small wild soybeans about 7,600 years ago in northern China. The selective breeding of soybeans for increased size began at least 5,000 years ago in China, but may also have started around the same time in Japan. Regardless of uh, its true origins, soy has proven absolutely essential to the region's foodways. But, uh, nutritive uh, value notwithstanding, it wasn't until soy met the fermentation 
that its true culinary potential was realized. Before miso, there was jiang. Jiangs, which translates roughly to pastes, encompass a large array of Chinese condiments and ferments. In fact, the oldest jiang was supposedly made from fish or meat, and resembled a sort of thick hybrid between garum and miso. As practices of animal husband improved through the ages, things changed and the main protein source for jiangs shifted from animals to vegetables over generations. Fermented black soybeans may be one of the first fermented soy products to come out of China, with references dating as far back as 90 BCE. China's uh, closest living relative to miso is uh, Huangjiang yellow paste, where soybeans are steamed and mixed with half their weight in wheat flour before being pressed into bricks and placed on reed mats to undergo wild fermentation in the open air. After a couple of weeks, wild molds that have grown on the surface of the bricks are brushed off and the bricks are mixed with the saline brine, further fermenting into viscous salty paste. When Chinese Buddhist monks arrived in Japan in the 6th century to enlighten the people of the island nation, they brought Zhiyangs with them. The Japanese would absorb the idea of fermenting soybeans and run with it. Japanese miso makers brought greater control to the fermentation process by first growing mold on grains before introducing soybeans to the process. Miso making became a specialized industry. Over centuries, recipes were refined and fractured into local specialties. In Japan, there are dozens upon dozens of varieties of miso, made in myriad styles. There are a number of variables to play with the miso making process, each capable of having a profound effect on the outcome. Quick look how miso production looked through the history. In the early days, almost everything used to make miso was built from wood. The spades, the trays, large vats and the buildings themselves were crafted from hardwood, usually Japanese cedar. Massive iron cauldrons would boil the water to steam rice and soybeans held in straw baskets. Cooled rice was spread on a large table and inoculated with a fine dusting of uh, rice uh, mold. Workers used spades to turn the rice, ensuring that the spores took hold evenly, then transferred it into cedar trays which were stacked in a warm, humid room. Soybeans were cooked until tender and crushed beneath men's feet. Workers would then mix the prepared koji and salt with the beans. Then, ferry buckets of the mixture up a step ladder to be emptied to the huge cedar fermenting vats. Lids weighted down with heavy rocks would compact the mixture, removing the air, leading to more uniform fermentation. As the miso fermented, salty umami-rich juices would flow to the top and form a puddle. This liquid came to known as tamari. It's usually less salty and more viscous than its descendant soyu. In Chinese, it's called jiangyu. You probably know it best as soy sauce. The vast wooden houses that uh, used to store the miso lacked much of a uh, way of temperature control. Fermentation would slow down in the winter and pick up speed again in the summer. No two batches were ever identical. Each was a product of specific time and unique conditions under which it fermented. And this is it. This is a short history of uh, pickles. I hope you got a taste uh, for all the different uh, fermentation and pickling techniques through the ages and through the continents. 
and uh, that inspires you to make your own, of course, but also find and explore pickles from around the world, from China and Japan, and uh, modern Iraq and Turkey, and of course, um, North Europe, Russia and Ukraine, which have uh, a crazy variety of uh, different pickles. And that's all for me. I've been Thomas Dinas. This was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a good night. I would like to thank Richard Bignell and his studio Area 18 for the voiceover recording. And the studio is in North Acton, North Acton area. If you ever need to record anything, guys, Richard Bignell is your man. Thank you once again for listening to the Delicious Legacy podcast. For the last few months, we've been working hard behind the scenes in order to create some food-related videos for your hungry and ravenous eyes. I'm pleased to say some progress has been made on that front. Keep your eyes and ears open. I'd love to hear your thoughts and responses, so please head over on Twitter and tell me what you think. You can follow the podcast at The Delicious Legacy, all one word. Or join me on Patreon, where you can put The Delicious Legacy again, one word. And that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, forward slash The Delicious Legacy. Or Google Patreon and The Delicious Legacy podcast. This podcast can only keep going with the generous support of our subscribers on Patreon. You guys keep me running, you help me cover my costs, and allow me to dedicate more time researching each episode. I want to thank all of my subscribers for helping so far to create this series. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider going to Patreon and type the Delicious Legacy podcast and contribute something and keep this podcast running. Thanks for listening. All the best. Over and out. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions Supply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.